of Acts, Acts chapter 2, picking up at verse 16. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 910. Acts 2, starting at verse 16. You know the story. This is the first Pentecost celebration after Jesus' ascension, resurrection and ascension. The Holy Spirit, they are being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on them, said repeatedly here. And so notice that this is Peter's sermon. After people hear all the things that went on and started saying, why, these boys are drunk, or something like that. Then Peter says, no, we're not drunk. And he says, starting at verse 16, that this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there's God's sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's human free choice. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. We'll come back to Acts 2 in a moment. But now we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16. It's on page... Uh, 557 in your blue Bible, as we continue our series in Ecclesiastes, from abated to abiding. Now right now, I'm just going to read chapter 8, 16, through the first six verses of chapter 9, but do, I beg you, please have your Bibles open, because I will work all the way to chapter 9, 16, as we do the sermon. So right now, chapter 8, 16, through 9, 6. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night nor night do one's eyes sleep, see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. 
For the living know how they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for their memory of them is forgotten. For their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So all that I read to you from Acts 2 and from Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, thank you so much for what Ecclesiastes is addressing. Thank you for the soberness. Thank you for the soundness. Thank you for the sturdiness flowing through this book. Yet, simply being honest, Lord, we find ourselves often puzzled here. And so give us the help of your Spirit to lead us into all truth for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of your worship guide, and there are five points, lots of space there for you to write notes and uh, some questions for you tonight, uh, today, maybe at lunch or maybe at supper or whenever you hang out with some others who have been here. You know, sometimes there are thoughts and there are statements that just hit the nail. See, I got a big nail. Hit the nail squarely on the head. Kind of like when my dad used to say to me, son... Figures lie and liars figure. I never forgot that. I actually used that line when I was defending my doctoral thesis because we had to use statistics and they said, what's the weakest part of your doctoral thesis? Uh, the figures, the statistics. And they said, really, why? I said, because my dad used to always say, son, figures lie and liars figure. That's very helpful when you're reading statistical stuff. You will find that that's kind of the thing that it feels like and looks like. Here's another one. I remember John Butler, Pastor Butler, when he was here, used to tell me all the time that when he was growing up, his dad used to say to him, son, if they don't find you handsome, let them find you handy. <laughs> I stole that line and I use it around the house all the stinking time. But there's uh, some statements that really just kind of hit that nail on the head, so to speak. Well, Solomon is hammering home a nail, maybe actually several nails all at once. First off, he shows how uh, he will show us here how the, fu uh, the, the futility of nailing Jello to the wall. By the way, all five points have something to do with the nail. The futility of nailing Jello to the wall, and then how death nails us down, but also what to do when life nails us. Further, that we, humanly speaking, are often nailed by chance, and lastly. We find it hard to nail down fickle folk. Just think about the nail. If you need an example, here you go. Just think about nail. That's the whole point here. So notice nailing jello to the wall. It's chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 8, 16 and 17. You know, life and busyness are squishy, slippery little critters. Kind of like nailing jello to a wall. It's hard to keep hold of them. And Solomon rehearses that here, and he rehearses the rat race of living with all of the numerous dead ends and the plethora of unknown, gray, shadowy, misty days. That's how he puts it. When I apply my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does one's eyes see sleep, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. No one can figure it out, not even the wisest man, he goes on to say. What Solomon does is he brings us back to the hard-nosed certainty of uncertainty. 
The certainty of uncertainty. There's very few things that are certain in the world. And one of them is that it is certain that we are surrounded with lots of uncertainty. Reading Solomon's words here in chapter 8 sounds very eerily like Shakespeare's Macbeth. Macbeth said, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Sounds very much like Macbeth's statement, except verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 8 changes our direction and it grounds the God-fearing man and woman. It anchors us while we are being battered in the gritty windstorms of uncertainty. Ah, it's not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Notice what he says, the very first part of verse 17, then I saw the work of God. Instead, what God is doing in the midst of the uncertainty is He's schooling us, as we would say. He's schooling us, His children, to learn to look up, to learn to look beyond the gales and the snowstorms and the windstorms of uncertainty and to see our God. And I saw all the work of God. Chapter 8, 17 intrudes in this passage just like Chapter 3.11 did when we were back in chapter 3. Chapter 3.11. God has made everything beautiful in His time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what was done from the beginning to the end. That same sentiment is here in the same place. And I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun However much a man toils in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though the wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But I saw the work of God tells you there's more going on there than just what your eyeballs see. Even in the meaningless flurry and whirlwind of uncertainty, there's meaning and purpose. Though much of life is like trying to nail jello to a wall. Nevertheless, dear friends, there is a wall and there is a nail. Or to put it differently, to steal a line from C.S. Lewis, God is on the move. God is on the move. So from the certainty of uncertainty, Solomon then shows us how death, death, Nails us again, right? Death nails us again. He cannot leave this subject alone. It comes up all over Ecclesiastes. Try to remember, Solomon, as he is writing this, he's got one foot up on the bank of the freshly dug soil and the other foot is over a grave and he's looking back at his life and going, wow, I really messed it up. Let me help you so that you don't mess it up, Rehoboam, his son, Rehoboam, and the rest of us. And so it's chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. The great leveler nails us again. 
into the twisting, raging dust storm of chapter 8, 16, and 17 now crashes the great leveler, death. Here we are, back at it again. In fact, in verses 2 and 3, when he keeps saying, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, it doesn't matter if you're wise or stupid, the great same event happens to both. He's talking about the great leveler, death. The same event happens to both. You know, Johnny one note here. Mortality rate still 100%. None of us are getting out of here alive, no matter how good or bad you are. That's Solomon's point, right? But most people see life and see death, they see work and they see woe from only what we would call general revelation, natural revelation. And so that means they have no idea what it all means. They only see it from an earthly perspective under the sun. They have no idea what it all means. So notice how he puts it in verse 1. This I all lay, this, but all this I laid to heart, examining it to how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Most people see life and death and work and woe from that general revelation. They have no idea what it all means. It's kind of like when we were kids and we would have these crushes on someone and we'd take a flower and we'd say, Oh, she loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. Did you all do that? Okay, thank you. I'm glad somebody else did that, right? That's the point. Here we are, stuck on terra firma, up to our eyeballs in the human situation without any special revelation, and you have no idea if God loves you or doesn't love you. You become a billionaire. You inherit a billion dollars. God loves me! And then there's an economy crash. God hates me. You're doing well. you got that BMW you've always wanted. Oh, God obviously loves me. And then all of a sudden you get that doctor's report and you have a life-threatening cancer. Oh, God hates me. That's how it feels in life. Especially and specifically if all you have is general revelation to see life through. And yet, notice that Solomon sees God's providence at play. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's back at that theme. He'd said it back in chapter 8, 17. Then I saw the work of God. Here he is again. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He sees the providence of God in the midst of the uncertainty, even when the great leveler nails us. Providence of God. Part of our problem as Americans, and I don't know about any other country, but I know it's true here, is that we're all deists at heart. Probably most of our country really are deists. That's the folk religion that prevails throughout the land. What is deism? Somebody asks. Glad you asked. I'd love to tell you. Picture me in my workshop. This has happened for the last two weeks as I've been resurfacing and refinishing some tables and stuff. I get focused on my workshop on this table. I don't pay attention to Anna or the boys. Sometimes I pay attention to the cat. But almost always, I'm focused on the workshop. What's going on in the workshop? Deism is that God made all things and then walked away because He had other things to tinker with over the workshop. And He's busy over there stripping paint and He's over there refinishing the table. And every so often, He takes a break and looks over and He goes, Whoa! Those kids are messed up my earth! Fuck! Well, i got to get this done. And he gets busy again. That's deism. A God totally uninvolved. That's deism. 
Solomon is talking here about the providence of God. What is the providence of God? It's the personal rule. The personal rule and peculiar guidance that is going on by the hand of the involved, engaged God. I love the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. It is one of the best, simple definitions of providence. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 11, if you're writing notes. Number 11. What are the works of God's providence? The works of God's providence are His most holy, wise, powerful, preserving, and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing of all of His creatures and all their actions. The personal rule, peculiar guidance going on by the hand of the involved, engaged God. And so because of God's providence, then the preacher is telling us it is far better to be alive than dead. Verses 4-6. through six. Far better to be a living dog than a dead lion, y'all. Something like that, right? Remember, he is describing things from this side of the grave. He is not talking about eternity. So don't ever use Ecclesiastes to prove anything like soul sleep or the lack of soul sleep. He's not even touching those subjects. He's talking about what you see. In fact, keep in mind the observation language he uses all the way through Ecclesiastes. Like it'll come up when you get to verse 11. Again, I saw in verse 13, and I've also seen its observation language. He's just talking about what things look like to us. So he's describing things from the side of the grave, and what the preacher emphasizes is that while we're breathing, and while we're thinking, and while we're worrying, and while we're working... We still have an opportunity. There's hope while there's breath. Because once the great leveler, death comes and nails us, our dreams, he goes on to say in verse 6, our dreams will often go with us. Our loves, our fears, most of our work, most of our words, most of our hopes, all evaporate with us. We heard that last week when I was quoting to you from Psalm 146 in a different context. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. Dear friends, most of our hopes and dreams and desires and words and works will be forgotten within six weeks. Six months, six years, six decades. If you don't believe me, go back to Ancestry.com. And look at your family's history and then stop at about two generations for you and say, now who in the world was Aunt Matilda? And go find somebody who remembers Aunt Matilda. You might find somebody who still remembers Aunt Matilda smoked maybe Lucky Strikes or something, I don't know. What was Aunt Matilda? What were Aunt Matilda's dreams? What were her ambitions? I don't know. I just remember when I was a little kid. <clears throat> Gone. And so, while we're living, there's hope. Grab the life that God has given you, which then takes us to verses seven through ten. So, follow along as I read verses seven through ten. When life nails us, I'm playing on a phrase there. When life nails us. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Remember, in Ecclesiastes, vain does not mean like fruitless or meaningless. I know the NIV translated it that way. Well, it was wrong. I just want to tell you. It means the sense like vaporous. James talks about it in James 4. What is your life? It's a vapor. You're here today and gone tomorrow. That's what he means by vain. All of your temporary transitory life. Let me read it again, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life that he has given you. We're back there again. Life is a gift. You're not entitled to any of it. You have no guarantee that tomorrow is coming. You've got today. Who gave it to you? God did. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's part of what He's saying here. That He has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead, to which you are going. Solomon takes his last theme that he was dealing with in verses 1-6. through While there's life, there's hope. And he goes further. Here's what I mean, he says. And so to summarize verses 7-9, through I quoted this two weeks ago to you from Derek Kidner in his commentary. I think this really gets it. Simple satisfactions are soundest. Simple satisfactions are soundest. I think that's exactly where Solomon is at here. And so then, verse 10, make the most of what God has given to you. Make the most of what God has given to you. Can I tell you how many people, when I was a hospice chaplain, died regretfully? died with lots of regrets. I remember the baseball player, the little little double-A semi-pro baseball player. Unfortunately, he had drunk himself to this stage where he had killed himself, in essence. But here he was in his 40s. And he was dying. Because he was grasping for something else. He could not be satisfied with what was handed to him then. I love this line from an indie rock group called Mumford and Sons. If you ever listen to them, you'll know probably why I like them. Whoever writes their songs, it's one of their band members, obviously had a classical education because the Iliad and the Odyssey show up in their songs, and they also grew up with the Bible because the Bible shows up. But I don't know if they're Christians. But in one of their songs, they said this, In these bodies, we will live. In these bodies, we will die. And where you invest your love, you invest your life. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. I think that's exactly right. It's what Augustine was pointing out in his confessions as somebody summarized it. You are what you love. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. And so coming then to have contentment, to have gratitude, to have satisfaction, is the way to go. In 2014, Jonathan Rausch wrote an article in the Atlantic. Here it is right here. We talked about it yesterday in the men's book study. We actually read through some of it on our own. 
He wrote a, an article called The Real Roots of Midlife Crisis. There's lots of things he said, and he was drawing from the various studies. But I thought it was intriguing. But he's just talking about his own life. As he entered into midlife crisis, he said this. It was surprised him. Quote, What annoyed me most of all, much more than the disappointment itself, was that I felt ungrateful. The last thing in the world I was entitled to be. I felt ungrateful. That, that shocked him. That lack of gratitude was part of what he would call his midlife crisis. Instead, gratitude, contentment, satisfaction, the very traits that are often missing in much of the storminess of our lives. And it keeps resurfacing here in Ecclesiastes. I love the way that St. Augustine puts it because he's dealing with some of the same points. And I'll quote this till the day I die. From his Confessions, chapter 10, or book 10, paragraph 22, there's a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake. Whose joy you yourself are. And this is the happy life. To rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is true joy, and there is no other. And so, my friends, when life nails us, lift up your eyes, please, from underneath the S-U-N sun, to look up into the face of the S-U-N sun and find your joy there. Well, then Solomon gets back to it where sometimes we get nailed by chance. Ding, 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 ding. Nailed by chance. It's verses 11 through 12. Here we go. Again, I saw. There's the observation language. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance. Happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I love that verse 11. It actually keeps coming back in my head. And so when I was reading, I told you I read uh, Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs. The first two sentences... As soon as I read them, I stopped and ran back to my Bible and opened it up to Ecclesiastes 9-11 and I wrote it right there. It's, it's Ulysses S. Grant's opening statement in his memoirs. He goes like this. He actually quotes Thomas Akempis, who he did, probably didn't know who that was. It was probably a very common proverb. And then he makes his observation. Here it is. Quote, Man proposes and God disposes. There are but few important events in the affairs of men brought about by their own choice. End of quote. There are but few events uh, in the affairs of man brought about by their own choice. And all the way through his personal memoirs, he keeps coming back to that sentiment and that statement. That's what Solomon is referring to here. That recognition we need to have. Here we are in the condition, the human condition up to our eyeballs and time and space and finitude and limitedness. 
We're often nailed by chance, by luck, by fortune or misfortune. And I can say that because it's right here in the Bible. By time and chance, happen to them all. Now, on the one hand, if all we have is general revelation, then everything seems accidental, coincidental, unintentional. Verse 11. Yet, on the other hand, behind the fortuitous events, or not so fortuitous events, we, if we sit here with Solomon and with sacred Scripture, we see something else going on. We see the hand of God moving and shaping and directing. Now, if we would rather live with chance, if we would rather say, no, I don't want that particular special revelation of God because that means God's going to be getting into my business and I don't want God in my business. I'd rather take chances on my own. I'll just live by chance. If you want to live by chance, by luck, well then, good luck and all the best. But if we can have our heads squarely on our shoulders and both eyeballs in our heads, then even though we may never figure out all the reasons for it, all the rationales, all the resolutions for all of the chance events, we will know that there is unending purpose, there is eternal meaning, there is an undying aim behind and under and in and around these episodes. The one direction, chance, will only lead you in the end to despair, why there's really no purpose. Or it will lead you to self-righteous self-deception. I'm the master of my own destiny. But the other one, with Job, the book of Job, with Job will lead you to worship and prayer and trust and hope. And so, still describing life, even a life that feels and looks like it's full of only chance, in the midst of this life, there are still fickle folk. We need to talk about fickle folk, nailing down the fickleness of folks. Verses 13 through 16. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it, but there was found in it a poor man, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. We're back to that better than language there. Far better the poor man's wisdom, no matter the, the outcomes, that everybody forgot him or rejected and neglected him. Now I want you to notice that Solomon has been schooling us. He's been giving us a school lesson here. Since chapter 8, 16, all the way here to chapter 9, 16. It's almost like bookends. In chapter 8, 17, he says, man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. In chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, he says, for the living know that they, are, they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy will have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And here he ends his school lesson with the same, with the same thought. Here was a wise man who delivered a city, and nobody remembered him, and nobody cared to remember him. Oh, 
we're back to the same lessons, aren't we? Why is Solomon doing this? My friends, remember, Solomon is trying to knock Rehoboam's ego down a few notches. You you remember Rehoboam, his son? Full of spit and vinegar? Right? As soon as he came to power, he ruined God's kingdom. He's trying to bring Rehoboam's ego down a few notches, and we can go further and say, and he's also trying to bring our egos down a few notches. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to sober us up so that we're not soused with the rest of our society. We live in an inebriated, intoxicated world. We always have been since Genesis 3. Full of self-deception and self-lies. Full of its own importance. Thinks it's the most important moment in history. Every generation does. Staggering around, drunk and inebriated. And Solomon steps in and says, Look, don't be like the rest of your world you live in. Be humble. He's trying to knock our egos down a few notches. Now notice the little story that he tells here. It's a bit like an Aesop's fable story. Did you notice that? I love Aesop's fables. Foxes jumping at grapes and all those things. I love Aesop's fables. But it's a story, he tells, that has a lot to do with fickle folk. And there's a moral to the ending, and the moral is verse 16. Far better to be that wise poor man that everybody forgot and rejected. Still far better, no matter the outcome. My friends, think about the fickleness that's laid out here, the fickle people. This fickleness shows up all over Scripture. I just ran across it again this last week in my devotional reading, another situation, but let me give you two. Over there in 1 Samuel 23, verses 1-14, through David rescues a city called Kailah. K-E-I-L-A-H, rescues him from the Philistines. And so the city is delighted. They celebrate David as their savior, and he likes the, revela- the, 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 the celebration, and he's reveling a bit himself. And then all of a sudden, a day or two later, comes news that Saul, who's out after his head, is on his way to get him. And so he asks the Lord. He says, Lord, will the people of Kilo, will they betray me? And God says, Oh yeah, the fickleness of folk. But we just read about it right before the confession of sin. Did you notice that? Not even a week apart, the first part, Jesus comes in on a donkey to the the holy city. And what are people doing? What are the crowds shouting? Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! The kingdom of God has come! Here comes the king! Not even a week later, what are those same crowds crying out? Crucify him! The fickleness of folk! We're stupid and idiots for trying to want to please the world! This love affair we have with approval and acceptance by everybody. Are you serious? I love C.S. Lewis's uh, chapter, the, the Inner Ring. And one of the things he points out is that the Inner Ring is always moving. So every time you're trying to get into the Inner Ring, you find the Inner Ring has moved. Right? That's trying to live for everybody's approval. The fickleness of folk. 
So the intention is for us to see that it's best to have both eyes in our heads and to have a tough-minded soberness no matter what the fickle folk do or don't do. Well, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up verse 17 next week and go as far as we can then. But for now, let's wrap this up with two ribbons. Let's see if we can make a little bow out of it. My friends, how are we to think about all this stuff? How are we to handle the certain uncertainty, these fickle folk, this happenstance and fate or chance as he calls it, time and chance? How are we to handle that, but also the personal providence of God? How are we to deal with that? And I think Peter, Peter, Peter rightly shows us there in Acts chapter 2. He shows us where human scheming with all of its vacillations and chance happenings along with the uncertainty and the great level or death, how all that comes together. And where does it come together? It comes together in the palm of God's hand who is directing and guiding and bringing it to a point at the cross. Peter says, by the, by, let me just read it to you, because I forgot how it says it. Here we go. <laughs> this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's God's sovereignty and His providence and so forth. But then all of a sudden, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's human free choice. He doesn't say, well, you couldn't help it because God had predetermined all things and so you're just, you know, you, you're just an automaton or something, right? No, they freely chose their part in God's determined plan and purpose. And so, even if it confuses you, if you can't figure it out and pull it together, go to Acts 2, verses 22-24 through and say whatever else it means, it means that God... Pulled it all together for us and for our salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Pulled it all together for us and for our salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. And I hope if you have your Bible, you'll write it there in the margin of, of chapter 8, 16 through 9, 16, Acts 2, 22 through 24. But also, my friends, as we look further along the trajectory of Solomon's aging pointed finger, and we look along that direction through the cross, we can see more clearly what he could only hazily see. All the questions you have as you go through chapter 8, 16 through 9, 16 are laid out for us with a solid answer in what we heard in the call to worship from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Listen to me. Wake up. Listen while I read this and think about it. Hey, that actually fits Ecclesiastes. Listen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famineness, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. None of those things in Ecclesiastes 8.16-9.16 and so forth. None of them will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Which then brings us to one last thing. I want you to open your hymn books. That red hymnal to 128. We're going to sing this a cappella, so that way David doesn't fret. Where's David? There he is. We're going to sing this a cappella. You know the tune well, I'm sure. This is a hymn written by David, uh, William Cooper. William Cooper was a man who struggled with serious mental health issues. He was depressed for long seasons. He even tried and attempted suicide more than once. And some of that was physically induced. He was taking the miracle drug of the day, silver mercury. Ha! That made me depressed. And when he would finally surface from the dark dredges of his depression, he would spend long seasons seeing the hand of God even in that darkness that he couldn't see before. And so he'd write these poems, and one of them became this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Let me read to you verse 3, 4, and 6, and then we're going to sing the whole thing. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter. But he will make it plain. I want to sing those verses. All of them. Okay, here we go. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to You do move in mysterious ways, Lord God. We are often baffled, but we know this. We know that You are engaged and You are involved. And the cross proves it to us. Where, you, where Your Son, by Your predetermined counsel and foreknowledge, died at the right time and the right place for Your people. And all the chance things, the human decisions, all that played in so, Lord, help us to lift up our eyes from under the S-U-N, under the sun, to look fully into the face of the S-O-N, to, the, to Your Son, 
We may find true joy as we go through this life. In Jesus' name, amen.